Welcome to Food and Wine with Chef Jamie Gwen. Celebrate food and life by learning about the culinary scene around the world. Speaking with chefs, artists, and food makers, farmers, authors, and tastemakers who are passionate about everything delicious. A very good Sunday to you, food lovers. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. I welcome you to a full hour of delicious conversation and gastronomic inspiration. The holidays are here again, and every Sunday I'll deliver the best of food and drink culture to you. From chefs' perspectives to recipes and culinary insight, eaters across the country dig in because I'm dedicated to great taste. I hope you'll open your mind, expand your palate, and join me to gain delicious knowledge on the wonderful world of food. I'm delighting your palate with the best ideas for the coming holidays, Thanksgiving, Hanukkah, Kwanzaa, Christmas. And of course, you can entertain with ease this holiday season by choosing from my endless list of seasonal recipes at chefjamie.com. And you can find my daily dish on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at chefjamiegwen. So the million dollar question for today's cooking lesson is, what is Hasselback? Well, the Hasselback potato is clearly the most impressive spud to ever call itself a side dish. They also sometimes go under the name accordion potatoes, or I've seen them called pill bug potatoes, which I think is really funny. But no matter what you call it, the result is the same. It's a single potato that's been sliced into thin wedges, but left joined at the bottom and then baked until the layers fan out into these rounds of crispy, decadent bliss. Now, the slits actually allow for butter or olive oil and spices and other toppings to seep in between each of the crevices for truly fabulous flavor. A Hasselback potato is like having all of your potato dreams come true at once. The potatoes have the crispy edges of French fries, but the middles are creamy like mashed potatoes. So if you want to be a culinary hero this Thanksgiving, you should learn to Hasselback. Now, it's true, they are a quick side dish for dinner, but their elegant presentation really makes an eye-catching addition to holiday meals. Now, despite their fancy pants appearance, Hasselback takes really no more time and little more effort than your average foil-wrapped baked potato. But did you know that you can Hasselback many a fruit and vegetable, like apples cut in Hasselback fashion are decadent, brushed with butter, sprinkled with cinnamon, sugar, and baked, Squash, like butternut, if you have a great big cleaver and a strong bicep, (laughs) cut Hasselback, drizzled with chipotle honey, and roasted, so impressive and delicious. And by the way, sweet potatoes too. And then you can even Hasselback a chicken breast and stuff it with cheese and herbs. You just cut on the bias. It's not so bad either. You see, when a recipe becomes a viral hit on the internet, which Hasselback has, well, you just have to check and see what all the fuss is about, right? Hasselback potatoes, worth the fuss. Now, we can thank the Swedes for this newfound culinary phenomenon. The Hasselback potato is actually named for the hotel in Stockholm where the slicing treatment was invented in the 1950s. And the original recipe wrapped the spud in bacon. 
I think they're onto something, don't you? <laughs> you start with, for the basic Hasselback potato, a few potatoes, and any potato will do. Some love a traditional russet. I've seen it done with small red bliss potatoes. I've always loved a Yukon gold. It's buttery and yummy. Um, and all you do is you slice um, vertically, leaving the potato still intact at the bottom. Now, first off, I like to get a thin horizontal sliver off the bottom of the potato to ensure that it rests flat on your cutting board and on the baking sheet. The key to a great Hasselback potato, though, is your knife skills and a great way to practice, don't you think? So you slice straight down into the potato, but you stop just short of cutting all the way through and you make your slices as thin or as thick as you like. So you don't have to be a culinary master. I've seen it done with half inch slices and I happen to think that quarter inch slices are thin enough to get really great benefits of the culinary method. But no matter your expertise with a knife, you can hassle back. You place the potatoes on a baking sheet and then next comes the fat, whether it be butter or olive oil or any mix of fats. I mix butter and olive oil for richness and flavor, but also the olive oil because of its high smoking point lends crispiness. I've actually thought about trying duck fat, but I haven't done that yet but I should. And you really don't need much. I mean, you just need enough to brush the outside of the potato before it's baked. And then halfway through the baking process, you brush it again. The second application, by the way, is very important. When you first cut the potatoes, the slices are still very tight together, but about halfway through the baking, the potatoes have expanded and the fan that you've created from cutting those thin slices top to bottom starts to fan out. And it gives you some space to get the butter or the olive oil down into the nooks and the crannies. And it really ensures crispy perfection when you baste once during the roasting. Now, these accordion folds, also known as Hasselback, are begging to be stuffed with just about anything. So shredded cheese, minced herbs, perhaps crumbled bacon. In fact, a loaded Hasselback potato sounds really good right now. For the holidays though, you know Kenji Lopez-Alt. He's actually been highlighted on this show. He graced this show with his new cookbook recently. He's the food genius behind Serious Eats, which everyone loves. And he took Hasselback to a whole new level for the holiday season. He combines the method of potato gratin with Hasselback roast potatoes for the ultimate creamy in the middle, crispy on the top casserole. He takes mandolin slices of potato. So he cuts them all the way through, thin slices. But instead of layering them horizontally, he stands them up to simulate Hasselback. And he puts them into a casserole dish, pretty tight in fact. And then he pours in heavy cream and shredded cheese and he bakes it for the ultimate gratin. And I cannot wait to try it. And if you've tried it, by the way, let me know how it turns out, please. Jamie at chefjamie.com will get you to me. But with regards to Hasselback, start with the basic. If you haven't made Hasselback potatoes before, Wait till you see what all the buzz is about. You will end up with the most stylish baked potatoes on the block. And I will, of course, post my Hasselback recipe on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram under Chef Jamie Gwen. And, oh, you're welcome. (laughs) 
Okay, there's some food news from this past week. Speaking of potatoes that you might want to know, here's some news you can use. You might never have to worry about potatoes or apples for that matter oxidizing again thanks to modern food science. Two companies received green lights from the U.S. Department of Agriculture this past week for non-browning potato varietals. They're actually being called biotech potatoes. Not sure how I feel about that. And all three of the potato varieties that are being tested have been removed of the gene that is responsible for bruising and browning. Now, the potato companies say that this modification will help reduce food waste and therefore, you know, increase food security because there is a greater food supply. By turning off the browning and the bruising gene, fewer chips and fries would be rejected for discoloration. Statistics show, though, that only 5% of fries and chips are rejected because of browning. And, you know, the experts say they're not sure about GMO potatoes either. Of course, the Center for Food Safety has raised their concerns on the yet unknown consequences. And I think I'll take my potatoes straight up, like with a brown spot or two, and non-GMO. How about you? I'm good with that. But it is great dinner party conversation, don't you think? (laughs) And please don't touch your dial because we have really delicious things coming up. We're delving into the science and the beauty behind bread with the modernist cuisine genius that is Chef Francisco Magoya. Yes, modernist bread just released all 2,000 plus pages of it, and you're going to want to hear all about it. Also, before the end of the hour, we'll enlighten you to the marvels of Manuka honey because your health just got better. Stay tuned. There's more fabulous food in your radio right after this. This is a true culinary exploration every Sunday in your radio. Chef Jamie Gwen with you. So Nathan Mirvold and Francisco Magoya, they're at it again, using science and history to unlock the secrets of bread. In their very obsessive study of bread and how it's changed through the ages, Modernist Bread, the follow-up to Modernist Cuisine, is a five-part cookbook that was just released by The Cooking Lab. The new book stretches over 2,000 pages, and it chronicles the history and the science of the most beautiful bread baking. So today we're rethinking one of the world's oldest foods to understand how bread is made. And Chef Francisco Magoya is back to enlighten us. Francisco leads the modernist cuisine culinary team as head chef and has been recognized as the top pastry chef and chocolatier in the U.S. And I am very glad to have you back. Thank you for being here, chef. Oh, it's my pleasure. Always good talking to you. Oh, thank you. Uh, Congratulations. So it's a 50-pound book with four pounds of ink, over a million words, 3,000 photos. I understand you baked over 36,000 loaves using 19 tons of flour. 
and that 230 very talented and extraordinary bakers contributed to the recipes. Talk about a feat. We thought you outdid yourself with modernist cuisine. Well, I think part of it was because more people... Like when modernist cuisine was being written, there was no president for it, and nobody knew like who are these guys and you know what are they trying to do. Where True. now with modernist bread and having some history and people knowing what we do, there were it was easier to um, recruit people to you know test recipes for us or to review text or you know we had some folks too who. For example, we had historians who were crucial in writing our history chapter, and so there was a lot of people involved who were happy to be involved because, again, we there there was there was now a president of, of how we do things. So. No doubt. Um, why bread? If you would tell a bit of the backstory, I understand that Nathan was shooting. Uh, was it in Italy? Uh, beautiful artwork, and and it incorporated the beauty of bread so much so that it was an inspiration of sorts. I think, uh, you know, bread is one of those, it's a perfect uh, scientific model of something that looks so simple and, and at first glance, but it's, it's actually one of the most extremely complicated um, systems that exists. I mean, I can't think of anything else that is made up of four ingredients that just by altering, altering you know, the quantities, you could get so such dramatic different results from, from one bread to the other and still call it bread. Hmm. Um, I really think that if, if we had to, uh, if we thought about it, there's nothing more complicated or there's no more complicated system than that of dough. Uh, so our job was to basically take this dough and, and you know, the, just the concept of bread and try to break it down into what, you know, modernist cuisine does, which is the science of it. Uh, because when you understand the science of things, all of a sudden they become less complicated. I mean, it, it, there's with bread, there's a lot of uh, mysticism. There's a lot of folklore that uh, occurs simply because you know bread has been you know it, it goes hand in hand with mankind's history. So it's been around for so long that a lot of things that people do to make bread are either just by you know that's the way it was taught to them, or it's been passed down from generation to generation, or you know, there, there's a lot of it that, that doesn't come from science. That just comes from human folly, you know, and, mm-hmm. and it's taught from one person to the other. And so what we wanted to do was demystify a lot of those things uh, to explain to people, you know, things that, that might worry them, like building a starter, maintaining mm-hmm. a sourdough starter, um, you know, how to proof your dough, how to bake it in a home oven or how to bake it in a professional oven. Right. There was so much of it... Uh, so much information that we eventually came up with that we actually had to cut some text out of the book. Otherwise, it would have been an even bigger book. So bread, <laughs> right. is, bread, bread is, is, is Nathan's wheelhouse for that reason because it's uh, because of all those reasons that I mentioned. I mean, it, it's, it's one of the first foods you eat, too, yes. right, as a, as a child. I don't think anybody remembers their first loaf of bread because you, you had it at such a an young early age. age. Yeah. Yeah, and that's it's such true. an integral part of your life that... Yes. I can't think that anybody really remembers the first loaf of bread they ate. So, so. give us a, a few tastes of the uh, extraordinary research and the education that you share in 2,462 pages. Uh, the secrets, if you would. So I, I love that if you want to relax dough, you mm-hmm. share with us the idea yeah. of acid. For example, if we... 
whenever we tried to, whenever we tackled any sort of, you know, classic recipe and wanted to make adjustments to it, it was mostly because, I mean, what we asked ourselves was this question. It's like, what could be improved about this bread? Or what is it about this bread that is complicated in its process that we could improve on it or make better or easier or faster? There was always this mantra of improving somehow the dough um, and not just making it, changing things just willy-nilly for, you know, hmm. just for no real reason. Um, and that was the case with utilizing the, uh, the fruit juice, which I'm going to explain to you what it is. What it means is, if you have a dough that is very stiff, typically stiff doughs, what that means is that they're, they're very low in water. The lower the water, the stiffer the dough. Mm-hmm. So in doughs like challah or pretzels or bagels, these are doughs that are uh, they're very stiff, and so they're very hard to roll out by hand. They, as you try to roll them out, if you do it too hard, they tend to rip a little bit um, because they're not as stretchy. Or if you do roll them out, they spring back. Yes. very quickly because the gluten just wants to pull in. But it turns out that if you add a little bit of kiwi juice or pineapple juice or papaya juice, uh, literally two drops per, like, a kilo of dough, what this is going to do, there's an enzyme in these fruits that is a natural, um, it, it basically breaks down protein. And, but if you just add a little bit, it only breaks it down just enough so that the dough can become easy to roll out and stretch. Fascinating. Um, huh. this, is a, this is something that is done uh, with different sorts of additives uh, in, a, in like an industrial production, but they use different additives. They use like bromelain, they use papain, they use another ingredient called L-cysteine. But the, these are basically, uh, they're, they're just powdered forms of what is in kiwi juice and what is in pineapple juice. So the enzyme, bu- right. Yeah, the enzyme. You can buy a kiwi, eat mm. half of it, and then just take a couple drops, put it into <laughs> your holiday dough, and all of a sudden it magically becomes, not magically, but it seems like it magically becomes easier to roll out and to shape. Yeah, so, but what I think is amazing, Chef, is that there is a tremendous amount of um, quote-unquote magic in all yeah. of this knowledge that you are dishing out in the book. And that's what is so brilliant about modernist cuisine and now modernist bread is that you're delving so deeply into the makeup of bread that we're learning the secrets that we can apply ourselves. That one, you know, teeny ounce of information that makes all right. the difference. Like right. uh, the bubbles in dough. What uh-huh. what a brilliant piece! Um, uh-huh. How many bubbles in a loaf did you determine? Technically, there's only one bubble in a loaf of bread, <laughs> uh, and the reason why it's only one bubble is because all of the bubbles inside the dough have popped, and so they're all inter interconnected. So hmm. theoretically, it's yes. one bubble, just um, just one. Yeah, and yeah. so it, it, I mean, you'll never look at the crumb of your bread the same way again. No, um, not at all. I mean, I. Until I didn't learn this, I thought it was like, well, it's just a series of different bubbles. But, I mean, this, this, it's a very interesting fact about how bread bakes and how steam basically pops the bubbles. Um, and then it moves to the other bubble, and it pops that bubble, and it moves to another bubble, and it pops that one until it gets to the core of the dough. And that's it's a very interesting physical phenomena of, of steam and how it acts on dough. So, right. yeah, one bubble. Just one. If you are... Uh 
a dedicated bread baker. And if you're looking to master the art of bread, well, then uh, modernist bread will no doubt make you the best baker anyone has ever met. Chef Francisco Magoya is here, and we are talking about his and Nathan Mirvold's newest release, the 50-pound book that brings you incredible insight, the most comprehensive book ever written about bread. More with the genius of modernist cuisine on modernist bread right after this. back and we're dishing on the art and science and beauty of bread. Chef Francisco Magoya is here from Modernist Cuisine. Uh, Chef, let's talk bagels for a moment. Uh Uh, I love bagels. I do too. I know you do. That's funny. That's a a tidbit of fact I know about you. And I know um, that I think you and I share uh, the belief that a New York bagel is better is it not is it the water that does make it better no we don't share that opinion unfortunately we don't oh i thought we did okay wait you'll eat a bagel anywhere well i'll make a bagel oh there we go there's the difference yeah the difference is not necessarily in the water and and we we actually you know this is one of those things that just sounded so bogus that how can it be mostly because first and foremost i've had really bad bagels in new york city you have yeah, of course. Okay, I well, mean, I've not had good ones too, but yeah. it's not the norm that you have a good bagel just because you're standing in, you know, Thirty Second Street. You're going to have a good bagel. Well, then magically, it must be in my them. head, Francisco, because I, I, I will fly for bagels. <laughs> well, you don't have to anymore. Okay. Um, so do the, tell. We actually experimented with this. We had somebody bring us New York City tap water. Um, like they shipped us two gallons of tap water. Uh, in which we use that water to make not only the bagels, but also to boil them. Um, and then we bake them, and then we did the exact same recipe side-by-side side with Seattle tap water. And, you know, we boiled it in Seattle tap water as well. Um, and we did a blind tasting, what's called a triangle test, in which you give, uh, you know, somebody, uh, you give them three bagels, one of them is a control, and the two others are... Uh, they're exactly the same. Uh, and so people don't really know at all what they're tasting, what they're having. And so the people who tasted them, they could not tell the difference, hmm. um, whether they were Seattle bagels or New York bagels. And so a lot of it, the most important thing has to do with technique. Um, it, it has to do with how you make them. And, and the thing is that, you know, in New York, you're accustomed to having a bagel look and feel a certain way. And it might mean that in, you know, St. Louis, uh, you know, they make it slightly different because they don't live in New York, and so it looks a little bit different. It has a different feel. But it does. it's not about the water. If it was just about the water, um, I mean, that, speak about magic. I mean, that would be magic. You know, that would, that would be something that couldn't be explained by science. Um, not every tap water in New York City comes from the same source. I mean, they're not, not everybody gets the same kind of water. So, hmm. um and, you know, this is to say also that a lot of bakeries have to have their water filtered. 
and, and right. just by health department standards. So if it's any, like, magical ingredient that's in the water, it's going to be filtered out. Um, okay, Francisco, you're, you're bursting my one bubble. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. No, but no apologies you can make necessary. bagels in your house. Yes. You can make great bagels. That's very true. Okay, I shall follow the modernist bread technique. Um, I thought it was most interesting as well to learn and rather sad maybe, that whole wheat bread isn't necessarily healthier than white bread in uh, all of your research. Yeah, um, this is true. I mean, there, there was the initial research that was done into, um, into this whole, like, whole wheat is better for you than white uh, flour. Uh, the initial research on this was, uh, the science on it was very weak. And regardless of this, there was big companies that just latched onto it and they used this as a foundation to prove that whole wheat was healthier for you. Um, and you have to understand that, you know, look, and, you know, I'm sorry to get a little bit explicit here, but if you're taking whole wheat for, uh, let's say, to stay regular. Yes. Sure, fine. And that's really the only reason it's going to work because what you have is bran and germ, which are, uh, basically, it's insoluble fiber, and there's nothing in there that your body can break down. So any nutrients that might be in there, your body's not going to absorb. It's just not going to happen. It's gonna, they're going to go right through you. Um, so if you're eating whole wheat bread for nutrition, it's, you're, you're, you shouldn't be doing it for that. If you're doing it because they taste good, then fine, because whole wheat breads are delicious. Grains are delicious. Uh, they make exceptional breads. But don't take it like medicine, expecting that whole wheat is all of a sudden going to be this, like, that thing, this thing that is good for you. Hmm. White bread has as much nutrition as whole wheat bread. Hmm. Um, and again, sure, in the, in the ingredients you might see that the bran and germ have these uh, minerals and these vitamins, but your body cannot absorb them. Well, it, cer- um, it certainly lessens the restrictions. It brings a whole new world of possibilities to the daily sandwich. Yeah, I mean, because... The thing is that, you know, nobody should really judge anybody else for what sort of bread they eat, right? I mean, there's, there's right. this whole thing that you don't eat whole wheat bread, you eat white bread, something's wrong with you. Um, you know, that, that should, I mean, if you like white bread, eat white bread. If you like whole wheat bread, eat whole wheat bread. Don't do it for nutritional purposes because that's, that's not, you're not going to get the nutrition you think you're getting from bread. Okay, so, good lesson. A good lesson, yeah, no well, doubt. Proven. Yeah, but also keep in mind, we don't eat as much bread these days as we used to in the past, right? I mean, there's... That's true. Uh, before our diet was probably half, if not everything we ate was bread. Mm. Um, and these days, it's greatly reduced. So, again, it's, it's one of those things that everything in moderation, you know? Thank you for sharing your immense knowledge and passion. Um, I am always grateful to have you on the radio and you are welcome every and any time. Thank you so much. I, yes, I hope thank we you. can get more people to make bread. That'd yes, baking brilliant bread. The art and science, uh, a revolutionary new understanding of one of the most important staples of the human diet. Modernist Bread has just released the latest scientific research, state-of-the-art applications spanning over 2,600 pages. This is the largest, most comprehensive book ever written about bread from the genius that is Chef Francisco Magoya and Nathan Mirvold. And it will change the way you think of bread from the ground up. 
You can learn more at modernistcuisine.com and follow Francisco at FJ Migoya, M-I-G-O-Y-A. Uh, a very um, delicious bread baking and bread breaking season to you, Chef. Thank you again. Thank you. Yes, Bye. Always a pleasure. As the delicious conversation continues, Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio with gastronomic insight and more after the break. Delivering the world of food directly to your radio. Welcome back. Chef Jamie Gwen here. So I had a bit of a sore throat this morning. I took my daily teaspoon of Manuka and I'm here to tell you, yes, I am a believer. Have you heard the buzz, pun intended, about Manuka honey? Well, Manuka honey is produced in New Zealand by bees that pollinate the native Manuka bush, creating that healing power of honey. And it is considered one of nature's most powerful natural medicines. Honey has long been used since ancient times for its healing properties, and Manuka honey is truly a gift from the bees. To learn more and to better understand the phenomenon that is Manuka, Andrew Kerr from Three Peaks, considered to be the world's most magnificent Manuka honey, is here to dish live from New Zealand. I'm very glad to have you. Hi, Andrew. Hi, Jamie. <laughs> Thank you for being here. Uh, did you uh, take your daily dose of Manuka today? I have had my daily dose of Manuka, <laughs> and uh, I do every day. Yes. Uh, was it in tea or coffee, or did you drizzle it over your granola, as I understand you are famous for? Um, I have it in smoothies, and I also take it straight from nice. the jar. Nice. Okay, I did that too. Um, I think it's really quite extraordinary that it has been many years since the researchers at, from what I understand, the New Zealand University found that this Manuka honey contained higher levels of enzymes than conventional honey, right? In 1981, the study came out. And so I would love if you would share more and exactly what is Manuka and what these uh, enzymes are credited with. Manuka is a plant that's found in New Zealand. It, it flowers for a very short period of time, only around 10 weeks a year. Hmm. Uh, that starts in our... Um, start of our summer season really, so December through to uh, the end of February. It contains a little over 200 compounds that you don't find in other honeys. Um, these come together to form um, the UMF rating that we get out of the honey. So you have uh, DHA, MGO, uh, which provides um, the medicinal properties that are found in Manuka honey. Mm -hmm. So the compounds... The compounds are unique to Manuka. Uh, the higher the UMF rating you can get, the better. So the unique Manuka factor, or the UMF rating, is we test for that. So we have the, um, the honey is harvested, and we put it into the laboratory for testing, and it gives us our rating uh, of UMF, and it ranges from 6 plus through to 20 plus. So these ratings determine the strength of the enzyme itself, which has been proven to have extraordinary benefits to enrich the body, right? Exactly right. More on the marvels of Manuka right after this.
because of the research and the studies that have been done that Manuka honey protects against damage caused by bacteria. We know that it can um, stimulate production of cells, that it fights against uh, infection. There are a lot of people that use it as a natural antibacterial. Yes? Yes, absolutely. So it promotes good digestive health. Digestive too. Good for coughs and colds. Yes. Uh, Sore throats, as you were talking about this morning. You Mm -hmm. get a sore throat, you take the Manuka honey. It it helps a lot to... uh, take the manuka honey it helps the throat um, get better um, daily wellness um, just a boost of energy so if you're feeling a bit flat during the day as well you can take it for a bit of an energy boost along the way um, mm. right through to applying it topically on your skin for healing uh, wounds and um, injuries on your skin it helps to heal those up as well because of the antimicrobial properties that's in the manuka honey yes and we have another andrew here in the states actually andrew weil He's a homeopathic doctor I'm sure you know of, and he's a great Manuka honey fan because he believes in its power to reduce inflammation. Yeah, that, is, that has been um, you know, attributed to the qualities that's in the Manuka honey. There's, there's a lot of research going on around that, and it's now being added to a lot of um, medical-type dressings mm-hmm. um, for helping with inflammation. Yeah, fabulous. And and a totally natural product. I think what's so fascinating about honey, I happen to be um, uh, very much a honey lover, Andrew, and I speak about honey in that um, it's the considered the only um, food ingestible on the planet that never goes bad. They say that if you're going to ingest uh, honey, you know, on a daily basis just or to use in cooking, the, the regular form of it, that you should try to find that honey that is locally sourced or from hives in your area because you can uh, gain great benefit from the fact that the bees pollinate from the trees and the shrubbery and so on around you and you can build up uh, anti-allergic properties, you know, to lessen your allergies. There's something really, truly extraordinary just about honey in and of itself. And Manuka is that next level. Yeah, it is. It is. And like you say, the uh, taking it, the pollen that you find in the honey yes. does help build up your, your immune system to allergic reactions such as hay fever, huh. etc. Fascinating. Is Manuka the the shrub found anywhere else in the world other than New Zealand? Uh, there's different strains of it. It's sometimes called tea tree in, in other countries. Uh, in Australia, they have what they call tea tree. Yes. Uh, manuka, that we, we harvest our manuka from a very rugged part of the central North Island. Um, where it gets very cold in the winter and uh, very, very hot in the summer, and it's very remote. And so the, the manuka trees there are very, very hardy, if you like, because yes. they can handle the extreme temperature changes. Interesting. Um, and it makes strong plants, which which makes very good honey. Yes. Um, so, yeah, unique to that area, each province in New Zealand has different types of Manuka that produces different qualities of the honey. I read that it takes 375 New Zealand bees and eight Manuka plants to produce a jar of Three Peaks Manuka honey like the one I have on my kitchen counter. That is correct. So they're, they're amazing little creatures. They work very, very hard hmm. and uh, they, they produce a great product. Yeah, I, I really think it's quite extraordinary that we can benefit from the beauty of the ecosystem in the way that we do and that these new discoveries are always being made about 
the very natural ingestibles that can better our lives in so many ways. And Manuka honey and its popularity and ever-growing popularity uh, is really a testament to that. The big thing about it is, you know, our, our brand phrase is enrich life every day. Yes. Um, and I think that Manuka honey certainly does do that. Yeah, it certainly does. Um, and I am a great Three Peaks Manuka honey fan. Um, I have tasted many, and you do uh, have just a glorious product. And I thank you for sharing your insight and your knowledge and for bringing us, uh, no doubt, the best of Manuka honey from New Zealand. Thank you. He is Andrew Kerr of Three Peaks Manuka Honey. Do your research, learn about the health benefits of Manuka online, and then visit Three Peaks NZ for a premium education on the good stuff. And so that brings us to the end of another hour of truly delicious conversation. I hope that you'll show your good taste by tuning in every Sunday. And if you happen to have missed a show, you can find podcasts on iTunes under Food and Wine with Chef Jamie Gwen and holiday recipe inspiration always posted at chefjamie.com. I'll leave you with my last bite for the hour, my last ounce or tidbit of gastronomic inspiration. So you love pumpkin pie, right? But you don't really want to bake a whole pie. Well, I have the perfect hack for you. You can whip up this pie in a mug. It takes less than five minutes and it is absolutely worth every bite. In a microwave-safe mug, you mix together an egg, a cup of pumpkin puree, a couple of tablespoons of condensed milk, some pumpkin pie spice, and a pinch of salt, and you whisk it until it's smooth. You clean the edges of the cup, and then you set your microwave on high for two to three minutes or until the center of the mug is no longer liquid. Then you carefully remove the very hot mug from the microwave as it definitely gets hot. And instead of the crust, you garnish on the top with some graham cracker crumbs, maybe a big dollop of whipped creme fraiche or whipped cream and a sprinkling of Saigon cinnamon. And oh yes, you have the best pumpkin pie that ever came out of a microwave. I will post the recipe on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Chef Jamie Gwen for my microwave pumpkin pie. And I will meet you here next Sunday as we will be just days away from Thanksgiving and we'll be dishing on a glorious feast. I thank you for listening as always, and I wish you a delicious week. I'm Chef Jamie Gwen signing off, and I hope you continue to eat well. Well.